this is the On The Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. Hey, I need your help. Before we get going with this episode of On The Touchline, I want more and more people in the soccer community to find out about this show on their favorite podcasting platform. So stop what you're doing and subscribe. That way, you get new episodes of this show every Wednesday and every Saturday. If you listen on Apple Podcast, hit pause. Go there now and leave a five-star rating and a review of the show. Help me continue to broaden the audience for what we're trying to do with On the Touchline. Okay, you can hit play now. In episode 18 of On the Touchline... I talked to Drew Campbell. Drew is currently a club soccer coach in Boulder, Colorado, working primarily at the 9v9 level, but has also coached high school as well as middle school. The Beatles have a song from their Let It Be album entitled The Long and Winding Road. Drew's path to coaching has been filled with twists and turns where soccer has entered and exited his life at various times. Soccer can be a lifelong activity. However, that idea was never really explained to me as a child. And I've mentioned this story before. Part of why I left the game of soccer was thinking that there was a finite period of time that I could do this. That and the fact that soccer was not fun anymore for me as a youth player, is part of why I left. Drew talks a little bit about how influential his father was in terms of keeping it fun when he was a youth player in this particular episode. I also love talking to Drew because Drew is truly a deep thinker. His introspective nature is really interesting to hear as a fellow coach. I think all of us could stand to benefit from being more introspective at times. We talk about parental involvement. We also talk about the landscape currently of U.S. soccer. I think you'll find Drew to be a very interesting listen. I hope you enjoy episode 18 of On the Touchline with my guest, Drew Campbell. I would go so far as to say my story might be, uh, I wouldn't use the word inspirational, but it, it, it might be a guide for people that's um, on the other end of the spectrum from some of the people that you often have on your show. Um, I, am, I grew up an Air Force kid, but soccer was always the primary activity for me. Um, my friends and I played pretty much every sport, but soccer was probably had the the definitively the highest level of intrigue and just uh, just when it came back around seasonally, it was probably what we were the most excited about. But I grew up in a small southern town. It's uh, Tullahoma, Tennessee, about halfway between Nashville and Chattanooga, north and south in Tennessee. And it's where an Air Force base is, as I previously mentioned. But um, very small town, grew up. My dad was our coach. He did not play soccer ever growing up. He played uh, high school basketball and baseball. And he did an unreal job of making the game fun for us, which is always something that's prevalent in my mind. Um, For me, at least in my environment, uh, his coaching style is really what I think probably stoked my passion for it and kept a couple of my friends playing well beyond um, when you could probably have guessed they would have. Um, But it's basically just a small town. Uh, Played through high school. We did not even have club soccer. We had travel soccer. So just standalone teams, no central office, uh, dad, maybe a dad and mom tandem registering, running the teams. Um, So very kind of shallow in terms of not having a culture to attach to, not having a, um, of course, the teams were connected socially. I definitely knew the kids above and below me, but 
there was just there was nothing that really was a an inner um, a link between those age groups. So I played through high school, had a successful uh, middle school, high school experience. We competed extraordinarily well in state uh, regional tournaments at times. Then just kind of as I came to the end of high school, had some just family fallout, um, as many of us did. But uh, really, it brought me to a place where between that and an injury, I had uh, torn my MCL at a probably about the worst time for me, uh, just emotionally in terms of connecting with the sport. And I just, I backed out, um, separated myself from it, went to college at the University of Tennessee and played intramurals. Uh, it's kind of a, you know, it's one of those things that you just look back and you just don't know exactly why you didn't loop back around or what 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 didn't happen that could have just as easily happened to get you fully back into it because I loved soccer um very much a part of that generation where it wasn't available on tv and especially of course the internet at that time and again I didn't really have any men or women in my life that loved European soccer or, or patterned that to me so it's not that I thought my opportunities were done. It's just I went to college and just kind of faded from it for three years, um, just dealing with try, trying to get through school and uh, confusion surrounding what I wanted to be, uh, just like anyone else, feeling pressure to do something fairly conventional. Uh, being from a small town, you don't get a lot of entrepreneurial or, or uh, kind of secondary and tertiary jobs. It's like, hey, do I want to go medical? Am I going to sell insurance? I could join the Air Force. Not a lot of diversity in terms of the ideas I had. Um, so I just went to college. About the fourth year in college, I came back around and started training with the UT men's uh, club team and met a couple of good guys, had some good experiences, but never even really was committed or, or totally involved in that. Um, Definitely just trained, scrimmaged, et cetera. But um, again, just kind of trying to find, <clears throat> excuse me, I've still got my morning voice. Um, just trying to find my passion again. Um, after graduating, I worked with the AmeriCorps uh, Just Lead program there in Knoxville. It's kind of an urban youth renewal mentorship uh, uh, program for kids that uh, you could say are probably at risk or in um, op, uh, communities there in Knoxville that lack some of the opportunities that I had growing up. And when I was in there, I did a lot of programming for soccer, running camps. Uh, for, for those camps, I connected with the Knoxville Force, trying to get some of their players over as mentors and counselors. And when they came over, I ended up training with them a number of times, but by that point, I had a left hip issue and it just, it couldn't crescendo. It just couldn't grow. Um, the more I put into it, the more I suffered a bit. So <clears throat> that did not help me reconnect with the game. Um, so again, I was just kind of in this purgatory with the game for a while. And uh, probably about four years past that when I was about 26, I was doing well working in Knoxville, working for a shipping company, making very good money. Um, but in that industry, I realized I've got the metrics, I've got the resume. I could always show back up either here or at another office for the company I work for. So I wanna go and just do something for two or three years that'll probably fail, but it'll give me something to talk about. And I wanna go coach. So, due to a number of factors, mostly uh, the type of people, the type of environment I wanna be around. I moved out to Boulder, Colorado, and uh, immediately got on board with a local, uh, kind of a true grassroots club. And after a year of that, just really seeking mentorship and learning, uh, shadowing opportunities, I went to the bigger club in town, uh, FC Boulder, and that's been a terrific, experience and that really brings us to about five years later five and a half years later that brings us to where we are today um 
while I was in Knoxville, I also coached for a high school varsity team. I coached, uh, head coached a middle school team. Um, so again, I was always kind of flirting and staying around the game, but just didn't really catch a vision for what I could be within it until I came to FC Boulder. And at this point, I'm just, you know, full, full throttle to whatever extent is, appro- is appropriate and um, just really going for it. I uh, absolutely love your backstory, Drew. And, um, you know, part of why I want to give listeners sort of a very wide <clears throat> ranging, um, you know, audience in terms of people that come on this show is uh, everything you just said. And the fact that, you know, there was a period of uh, your life where soccer was very much at the forefront and then it moved to the back burner uh, and then it moved back to the forefront. And the fact that, um, you know, it never, you never completely fell out of love with it. It just sort of shifted around a little bit. And, you know, this idea that soccer can truly be a lifelong activity, right? It doesn't, just because you finish playing doesn't mean it has to end for any player, for any coach, for any, you know, parent or, or whatever. You can still stay involved in the game. Yes. Um, you know, I love how you've sort of gotten to, to where you are. You had mentioned something that, um, so you, you and I subscribe to a very similar idea that your dad had in terms of making it fun yeah. uh, at the youth level for players. And um, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm curious as to what he did to make it fun. Uh, was it the environment? Was it how he talked to players? Was it sort of, you know, was he, you know, overly energetic or anything like that? And um, I'm curious, maybe, do you replicate any of that in your coaching style? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, my dad, he um, engineer to the core, but at the same time, uh, just a just a gregarious, funny, engaging guy. Um in his retirement, he's done. He does plays, uh, directs and acts and plays. Uh, just, I I really took my personality from him. Uh, may have for a period of time could have been called like a class clown growing up, but um, that's not really his personality. It's and and I kind of grew into the into a similar one where it's just there's a seriousness there's a real value to what he's going to provide, but it's going to be, excuse me, it's going to be delivered within an overarching environment of just engagement and energy. Um, With each, with myself and my teammates, it was very connective. Um, uh, One thing that probably hurt me later on was I was formed as a player with my dad as a coach where he was just constantly engaging you as a person. Um, He had an inside joke with every kid on the team. There was um, just some kind of interaction that he would have with each player every day that was special, unique to them. And it made, it made kids on the team just not want to miss training. Um, There was going to be that relational emotional engagement for each player at essentially every training. And he just brought a lot of positive energy to it. Um, I think one thing that you could say, and, and obviously you have to have a feel for it, like uh, currently on one of my teams, it just doesn't land for one of the kids many days. So I have to, I have to remember that. And I have to, I have to round off some of those edges when I, when I, when I engage that, that young man, but, um, there's just an unashamed energy and desire to just connect with each kid to a point where like, I mean, how often do we struggle as coaches now? Um, you got 13 kids there. Hopefully, uh, I coach nine V nine currently. That's my specialty currently within our club. Um, so you got 12, 13 kids there and one or two are just there physically. Um, you got kids there physically, mentally, emotionally. And for my dad and something that I've taken from him is I think I watch a lot of other trainings and I think that emotional, emotional presence is only there for maybe half of the kids uh, most days, many days. 
And it's not something I force is what I would tell myself, but obviously that's something we'll, I'll, I'll continue to grow in. We'll all continue to grow in. Um, but just a, just a degree of engagement and, and sincere conversation, um, energy within the exercises, positivity, uh, individual technical um, correction, as well as encouragement. It's just, it's almost impossible for the kids not to be emotionally engaged. Like they're having fun and there is something demanded of them, but in a way where I think it's an invitation more than anything. Um, So, yeah. And then I guess I was saying an issue for me is I grew up, I came about in that environment and then went into a high school environment with a coach that was young at the time, it's funny you don't think about that. When you're 17, you just think about he's an adult. Um, but I, I would think he was probably about 27, 28, our, our varsity coach was. But more so just an informational style of teaching. And it's kind of, you know, looking back, it kind of shows how, how fickle you can be as a player. Because for me, it was, it was a struggle to just not feel that connection. Um, Later in high school, I I hinted at it earlier, but junior and senior year, I had a lot of fallout at home, um, probably changed my personality in some ways. And there was not much engagement towards that even. Um, It was very much just like, Drew, you're, you're here and we all need something from you. And if you can't provide that today, maybe you just need to head home. And that wasn't helpful. Um, it wasn't something that fed into my passion for the game or made me, you know, sometimes as a coach, we all have to admit, we'd love to say that 95, 98% of the time we do every single thing for, for an individual kid. Sometimes you do, um, work with a kid on a certain issue to try to get them ready for the weekend, try to get them in a place where they can perform. Um, so, from a self-serving or investment in me standpoint, I just didn't feel that um, in high school, whereas it was very prevalent before. So um, speaking of the, of the Chicago conference, there was two presentations that were really kind of coaching within the game. There was a Dr. Turner and then a Joe Sargason. And it, speaking only in terms of who I would connect with, Dr. Turner was very informational. Um, He gave good coaching points, but there wasn't much of an, of an emotional connection. There wasn't much of a voice modulation. There wasn't much, you know, there, there just wasn't that energy to it that Joe Sargason brought. And again, I think as coaches, we create this hierarchy of what session was good, what session was bad for me, Joe Sargason was just the best version of me. And so that was transformational for me just to get to see if I had or if I now place myself in an environment where that's the the bar, I can push towards that bar and be a better version of myself. And I took that from my dad to answer your question. I like the uh, the introspective nature of uh how you go about your work, Drew. And I think that, um, you know, I, I have often said that I love deep thinkers. Mm-hmm. I love people that, you know, can look at themselves in a, um, I get, you know, if you want to use the, the phrase critical eye or something like that, but are fair and sort of, uh, you know, give themselves a, a fair shake. And I think that, you know, your analysis of uh, your experiences, I mean, I, I think is absolutely fantastic. And maybe that's a, a good lead into my next question of what would you say are your strengths as a coach? And what would you say are your weaknesses of where you are now? Well, start off with weaknesses. I know uh, the story, as I shared earlier, I, I lost time. Um, you mostly run into whether they be American, British, or otherwise, you mostly run into people that had a really clear idea of what they wanted to do and be um, at 19, 18 to 22. It's crazy sometimes just to think if I just, if I'd gotten that one mentor that told me just to start on my badges, 
when I was 22, I would, I'd, I'd be at my, you know, a by now. Um, so I've lost some time that has, that's, you know, a logistical as well as emotional experience at some points, but for the most part, I'm extremely pleased with just how I developed as a person before I came into the soccer world. I think I bring a perspective. Um, you kind of spoke about it just a moment ago, but whether it be my own self-reflection or, or understanding of the game, uh, the game between the lines or the game in the boardrooms, I have, I bring kind of a 30,000 foot perspective to things. Um, I'm able to see the good, the bad, and I'm usually able to find um, kind of the best synergy of, of what I see available to the players and coaches. Um, as a weakness, I would say, like so many coaches, I'm just getting better at training the sport, training the actual in-game experience of the players rather than uh, speaking to maybe what Todd Bean would say is just like, don't you can't break it down into these constituent parts. And then in your pregame talk on Saturday, tell the kids to just go put it all together. Um, if those occur on a continuum, I'm probably close. I've, I have struggled to be closer towards, you know, technical work, small-sided game, condition small-sided game and then a scrimmage where I'm just like you know I, I saw some of it um you know and I'm, I, I work with 10 11 and 12 year olds so it can be fickle um just in in just a reality of it but um just getting better uh this spring I'm just going with a model that's much more game based game realistic um and I think it's going to transfer over to the game to where games on Saturday where the kids just say, I don't have to translate what we did during the week through two layers to apply it to what I'm seeing in front of me, but more so we have trained the game and I'm now in it and I know exactly what to do. Um, you don't want to programize, you don't want to program the players, but at the same time, in terms of just like transitional structure and transitional relationships between players, you can provide a real solid idea and vision for the kids. And I think I've not done that as well as I could in the past. <clears throat> um, yeah. Look, I, I was going to say, so um, you, you and I work in very similar age groups of, of players and uh, you know, I, I think we're winning, uh, so to speak, if the players are engaged and excited and they want to come to training and, yeah. you know, they, they, they leave the, the pitch on a, a weekend feeling good. Win or, you know, win or loss, um, it doesn't really matter. It's more about the long haul and sort of how we, you know, condition them to think uh, about the long haul. But we also know that parents are you know, uh, more than 50% of the equation, let's be honest. Right. Um, so I'm curious what your interactions with parents has been like, and, you know, maybe if you want to share positive or maybe some challenging experiences you've had, um, because I know for folks who listen to this in a, in a wide range of coaches and players and, and people in the game that, um, you know, it, it's, interesting to me to hear people share really good experiences and also for people when they say you know say something to the effect of god man like i just wish my parents would understand what we're trying to do even to my best efforts of trying to educate them and you know not using necessarily myself as an example there but from what i've heard from uh you know from other coaches or or people in the game so uh, i'm curious as to what that's been like for you yeah so i do find if you said you've done some research. You would have had to look well back. I think it's been months since I tweeted about this, but I'm a huge proponent of providing parents with as much information as you feel comfortable. Um, going back to listing weaknesses, uh, some of my peers, my boss might even would say that I probably share too much, um, not to an extreme, but when my team is first given to me, I connect with the parents. I talk to them about the kind of soccer that we're going to play, uh, that we're going to aim for something that will provide the kids solutions to the game far beyond when the teams they play first become organized and capable. 
in terms of playing balls out of the air or, you know, just whether it be youth baseball, you kind of hide a kid in right field or youth soccer, you know, you find coaches that will hide kids at, at, at defender. And if you hoof it up at the at that center back who's really struggling and you just press him and take the ball off of him and kick it in, that will be exciting. And it, and it will be um, something that American parents really enjoy and find to be um, – find to be the experience, the kind of superficial level of joy that they, that they want for the kids. And, and you have to, you have to cater to that in some small way um, to some small degree. You have to be able to understand that the kids do need short-term success. And um, I'm already kind of digging myself a hole because, you know, connecting through the thirds, um, teaching kids positional relationships, et cetera, there, there, there's, nothing about it that's scuttling the the experience there's no there's no attempt to put the kids in a poor situation it just it's a more intricate style of play and so they're not going to be as good at it at first um so what i like to do is i just like to communicate with the parents not with too terribly many words but with very just dense and and um, valuable um framework for what we're going to be working on and why and what it might look like um, and in my experience, I've the shortest answer is I've had tremendous uh, experiences with parents across every age group, every city, every club I've ever worked for. Um, to <laughs> to to address um, probability, that means I've probably got some coming up. But <laughs> and, and specifically, I mean, every once in a while, like. Um, I don't think I would be making, I don't think this would be so specific, but um, here recently I've had a kid that's going on my 07 team who's going through what I think is one of the coolest transitions a kid can go through. Um, He is just, he is transitioning from, I play football a lot. I play soccer. I mean, I play soccer a lot to, I am a soccer player. That is, that is what I am. And as that transition occurs, you, the stakes are raised. Um, mistakes in training stress them out. They stress them out more than they did in August. Um, successes are deeper, have more meaning. So that's that's a cool handoff. But as the stakes have raised for him, he's become he's handled some emotional moments in training in a super normal way, in a in a really cool and normal way, but maybe in ways that projectably will deteriorate his experience or uh, um, it's you understand what I'm saying. He's, he's become emotional in ways that he had, he struggled to make work for him. And so I wanted to talk to his dad about it just to broach it, just to truly just to show how invested and observant I am of the child. Um, And that was rebuffed in a way that I think just in the experiences we all have, um, just a moment where maybe the dad thought I was trying to label him or put him in a certain bucket or something like that. Not really sure. We're still trying to connect, but you have moments like that where it's just your classic, just gross miscommunication. You know, it's like you're just trying to pour into this kid and and you've got nothing but compliments, but it just doesn't come across that way in the email. Um, so you have moments like that, just slight mis- miscommunications, but in terms of just overarching, like in trying to develop a style of play, do parents say like, you know, why the heck aren't we doing this? I haven't had that too much. And I, I, I am a proponent on Twitter when, when I see coaches kind of bemoan the parents. You very quickly in reading what they're saying, you very quickly realize that they have not enrolled the parents in the program. They've maybe informed them to a certain degree or and probably not sufficiently, but they just haven't enrolled the parents. They haven't. And, and parents just want to know what's going on, because when we talk about pay for play, um, which I think can be an overblown topic in some ways, I, I don't see any other high value hobby that kids participate in that doesn't cost money. And, and in the era in which we are economically socioeconomically it's it all all of it is strained um but in the pay-to-play system 
there will always be people that don't have the money. And, and that's unfortunate. You, you try to get them in through scholarship, et cetera. You know, we, we all have things we cannot afford. But if you can afford it, it does it becomes it switches from an issue of cost to an issue of value. And as long as they're getting the v- more value than the perceived or more perceived value than the cost, they're not going to have any complaints. And I think part of that value is just enrolling the parents and educating them as to what the vision is and what it might look like along the way. And so I've utilized that and it's worked thus far. I couldn't agree uh, more with what you just said there, Drew, in terms of it being a partnership. Um, you know, the, the parents, uh, and, and I don't know if it's necessarily a generational thing, but I mean, parents are heavily engaged with their children's lives as they, as they should be. Uh, I, I'm engaged with the three kids I have. So, yeah. uh, you know, we, we want to know things. We want to be a part of the process. And you know, part of it, at least in my area, and you may have experienced this too, that, you know, part of it is educating folks who are non-soccer people, right? Why are we doing what we're doing? Why does it sometimes look a little messy? Why does it look, you know, as if we're not necessarily making those big leaps and bounds? I really like, though, what you said about those small victories, maybe celebrating those small victories and small accomplishments, because, that is, you know, so a series of small victories leads to a bigger victory overall. And uh, I mean, just reminding parents of that. Um, I like what you said about the value and, you know, the value added piece. And I can completely relate to the emotional player uh, experience because I'm going through that right now, actually, with uh, with two of my U10 players. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting. I think uh an earlier version of myself would have said like, dude, like, what are we doing? You know what I mean? Like, why are we, why are we getting so emotional after a match or, or whatever? And I actually sat with both of them. We had a, um, two makeup games last Friday oh. and I sat, sat with both of them after the game just for a moment. And just, I just listened to what they had to say. I don't know if I would have done that five years ago sure. and, you know, kind of swept them under the carpet and kind of moved along and said, okay, we're on to the next thing. And, was actually texting with uh, one of the parents of, uh, of one of the kids earlier this week. And I said that, you know, hey, I noticed that so-and-so is, you know, he's a really emotional player. And you know what? I actually love that about him. Yeah. And I love, and it, Drew, it goes exactly to what you said. It, it, he has switched from I play soccer to now I'm a soccer player. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, to becoming, uh, you know, I'll use the term footballer. I mean, yeah. he's, in, he's embracing all aspects of it. And part of that is that emotional, you know, he's growing into the best emotional version of himself. And, you know, I, and I, I told the parent that having those adversities is not a bad thing, you know yes. what I mean? Because he will be better equipped as we get further along and the more I work with him to handle those situations and, you know, you have to get knocked down so you can get back up. And uh, I mean, it's just neat to see kids develop in that way. Um, you know, I'm very much a, a player development, long-term thinking, you know, same as you 30,000 foot view kind of idea of the game. And um, yeah, it, it's nice to celebrate successes for sure. And it's nice to win matches from, from time to time that's not the only reason we do it, you know? And I think there is a delicate balance because I think winning to a large extent has gotten labeled as a sort of a bad word. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, we don't want to, I guess, make it the only thing that we're out to do, right? We're trying, at least in my experience, trying to develop not just soccer players, not just, you know, people, but we're, we're looking at the totality of it and the, the whole person. So, sure. um, yeah, a, lo- a lot of similar philosophies there. And I, I really like what you said. Hey guys, it's Jason. Don't run away. I got a quick word from our sponsor Flipboard. Let's maybe shift gears slightly in terms of the, the U S soccer landscape. Okay. And, um, you know, I, like I said, I enjoy deep thinkers. I enjoy people that are, know willing to ask sometimes those tough questions and you know the question that i ask every guest that comes on this show is you know what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong when it comes to soccer in this country and from your experiences and your background what would you say well it's a belabored topic um 
and and I look, I'm in, I'm going to enjoy weighing in. It's it is something that's a bit belabored, and it's something that I, I I'm only an observational party to. Um, but you see, like yesterday, their uh, interview with Tab Ram- Ramos comes out. And he, you can kind of see the desperation in his words, but um, so we currently have three national team coaches for seven national teams. Um, We're currently seeing most of our, uh, most of our, most of our encouraging talents head abroad um, to find professional opportunities it's a struggle for me to see what we're doing well. Um, I know from, so, okay. So what we're doing well, we are definitely developing soccer properties. Well, Um, there are soccer specific stadiums being built. Um, Just for me, uh, if you follow me online, I am a democratic socialist. I am very involved philosophically debate wise in regards to what um, what the trend in America needs to be in terms of returning to an authentic engagement of just utilitarianism, just helping the most people experience the best life. Um, I think soccer in this country is occurring very much within the era, the governmental uh, financial era in which it's occurring. It's a it's becoming hyper elitist. It's it's only available to the very few, and we all know that. Um, we all know, you know. Everybody says Clint Dempsey, Clint Dempsey wouldn't occur if he came out today. We know that's a fact. Um, it's unfortunate, but I understand how everything occurs within the society in which it in which it resides. Um, so yeah, I'm just I'm just not impressed that we're building these. It, it's a good thing. The Minnesota United Stadium is free, freaking breathtaking. It's unbelievable, um, but that is not, you know that's about as indicative of advancement in soccer in America as the Dow Jones is to increasing wealth within the middle class. Like it's hardly even correlative, much less causative. So, I. I celebrate the opening of these beautiful stadiums. They will come in handy at some point, um, but they are not indicative of soccer in America taking off. Um, The MLS continues to lose market share. Uh, More and more Americans are fired up about soccer, which is nothing but a good thing. Uh, At some point though, we have to get them to look locally and it's not working getting people that le- live 60 miles outside of a major city or 300 miles outside of a truly major regional city, which is where the MLS outfits are, are located. It's not working to get them emotionally attached to those teams. Um, we are getting more and more buy-in from people that live within 5, 15 miles of the stadium a more diverse crowd in terms of, um, and this is observationally, it's what I read, it's what I trust, it's what I see when I go to the games. Um, We're getting more and more diverse social groups within the white community to be engaged with the game, Uh, but that's not what we're aiming for. Uh, We want we want soccer to completely and totally dominate the sports landscape of this country. And it's not because we love the game. It's because it's the best game. It's, it is the greatest centralization of player empowerment, player personal development, um, basketball, five on five. It's the most beautiful experience sports wise in terms of just perpetually being one removed from the ball or, you know, in basketball, you are always a, a millisecond away from total involvement. But at the same time, the coach is calling the plays. Um, there's There are plays. There are pre-programmed scripted movements. Um, the decision-making is falsified in that way for the player. I just... I can go on for 30 minutes about how soccer is just simply philosophically the best sport for any child to participate in. 
And for those reasons, as well as just the fact that globally, the game is used more as a mechanism to connect, engage, empower, and enthrall and inspire communities. Um, the, world, the world over, it is, it is truly an anchoring pillar of society that, that and historically speaking, again, 30,000 foot view, people, most people do not realize how tenuous civilization is. Um, we're seeing glimpses of it in the West currently, but human civilization hangs by a thread or a number of threads. And the more threads it can hang from, the safer it is. And soccer works as a, as a way to keep European society intertwined, connected. Um, if, if the EPL wasn't so connected with the rest of Europe, I swear to you, it, it, it would be even more likely that, there's, that their political situation would be, well, it is an utter collapse currently, but it would, they, you get what I'm saying. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, is a, it is a tie that binds, and it's not because the top teams all play in the Champions League. It's because through the mechanism of promotion relegation, every reasonably, everybody in those countries has a stake, has a lottery ticket in their pocket for greater social and emotional engagement with their local team. And as that unfolds, play, it provides a player advancement uh, mechanism. You know, what is a second team going to do? They can't buy proven senior players. They have, they have to play teenagers. They have to develop them in order to hype them up so that they can sell them for more. They have to play them before they're ready. If they're, if that kid's age is 17 instead of 18, when they first break in, that breeds hype and hype equals money. And so second, third on down teams have to play youth. And in order to play youth, they have to have a game model, a methodology of play within their club, because that's the only way you can advance a player quick enough to play them for the senior team. They have to have been baked in that style of play for five, six, seven years. So the academy has to have a game model that they're teaching the kids. And it just goes on and on and on. Um, Coaches, players, fans. Capitalism is disenfranchisement. I'm sorry, like I'm people, people will sign in here just for soccer talk or to hear my story. Um, but you are removed from the authenticity of your experience when all it is is the top teams bantering about and then calling it a day and getting back together four months later. Um, just in Colorado alone, uh, the Rapids have recently uh signed two homegrown players. It's been absolutely exciting. Uh, nobody's come from our club that we've got a two-time national player of the year that they ought to look at. But um, when clubs engage their communities in authentic ways, it, it, it connects you to that operation. And the closer it gets to your home and the more local and, and young the roster gets, it's just the more more enticing and more engaging it becomes. I just, I don't get it. I, I understand the economics. I understand the, again, the era in which the MLS operates allows for it to continue in the way it does. But I think both the country and the league are going to, are going to shift quicker than most people predict, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, Drew, I absolutely love sort of the, the sociological uh, perspective there because you know, I often tell people, um, so two things can be true at the same time that, yes. you know, uh, you can be critical of the current landscape. And I think you and I look at it with a very critical eye uh, among others, but we can also celebrate, you know, some of those successes and sure but to what you said about, you know, infrastructure and, you know, yeah. the, the recent development with the rapids or whatever. A- a- absolutely. However, we have a long way to go. And we yes. are not, we're not there. And, um, you know, I, I have said this before and I will say it again, that money is the uh, cause of and solution to most of life's problems. Right. And yes. that, um, so, 
the current state of things, you know, I often tell people, um, and I actually shared this uh, on my Instagram uh, story recently, follow the money, right? Um, you know, some folks were sort of wondering why I was getting wound up about the U.S. national team uh, wearing the Volkswagen logo on their training sure. kits. And um, follow the money, right? Because I don't believe that that money is going to get filtered back into the system, right? There are, are hundreds a hundred plus million dollars that is being sat on right now. There's nothing that's being done with it. Right. And so the rich keep getting richer and the rest of us sort of have to find our way. And, you know, I I feel really passionately. um, So even if that is happening, right, people can still make it. It just becomes a lot harder to make it in that, um, you know, I have this sort of, uh, you know, I guess you'd call it individualistic approach that, um, you know, even whatever uh, someone's circumstances are, you know, even if they're the, the shittiest circumstances out there, people sure. can still find a way if they want it. Just really hard, but they can find a way. And, um, yeah, I, like I said, I, I just love the, the sociological perspective because I think what you allowed people to see, Drew, is that all these things are actually connected even though maybe on the surface people don't necessarily see them as connective dots. But yet I look at it the way you look at it and go, man, this guy's making a whole lot of sense here. So, Well, and it goes back to um, despite logically us thinking that anyone can come from anywhere, observationally, research-based, people need patterning. They need if if a kid from a certain community wants to be, say, a doctor, they need to see someone that looks like them come from their general area, become a doctor. Mm-hmm. Without that, as you move through the increase, you know, the, the increasing increasing gradient of resistance as you go through your education and the social and emotional demands of it, you just don't finish it. Like that's just, that's a reality of, of, of human existence. And we go back to talking about promotion, relegation, allowing for local heroes. If you're going to, if you want to see every, in every community in America have their youth sign up, switch more so to soccer. Um, If you're going to see kids truly like for me, I grew up in a small town. I had no patterning whatsoever. Um, my coach didn't tell me or show me how to be a coach in the future. Um, I certainly didn't see anybody. Um, I saw a couple of guys ahead of me go to like a U, uh, University of Alabama Huntsville to play soccer, but they, even they kind of, you know, portrayed it as kind of a, as a fun, but not, you know, it's just ex- extending the, the end game was more how it was portrayed. Um, I, I had no patterning. And so I faded. I didn't. I didn't know what I could be. I didn't know what I should be. Um, and of course, I made a hundred choices on my own. But when you sit back and you point at kids and say, like, "Well, look at the choices they made," um, I think it's cruel at best at times, just because we have human nature. And and to overcome human nature, I mean, the times it really happens, you know, it lands you on a talk show. You know, I mean. If you if you totally overcome your circumstances, you, you end up on Oprah. You know, I mean, it's like there's, <laughs> yeah. a, there's a reason a show like Oprah exists, because if you actually overcome your circumstances, that's wild. That's wild as a human being to just to do something that wasn't patterned or made available to you readily. And so we have this weird way as a culture of like glorifying those who actually do it, but kind of condemning those who don't. It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, but yes, I've, I've got a good friend here, uh, Marcus Awerko, who works for the Colorado Rapids. And um, in he, he first we first met just because I do sponsorship and development for our club. And I think when we first met, I made a couple of comments where he was like, oh, man, is, is he an, you know, it wasn't obvious even even to his suspicion. But he, I'm sure he was just like, oh, is, I think this guy might be an anti-MLS guy. And <laughs> I'm the opposite of that. I'm, I am never confused dissension with disloyalty is, is a quote that kind of defines my um, participation in things. Um, 
if I love something, I'm going to cheer it on and I'm going to, I'm going to provide valuable, incisive critiques. And as Marcus and I have, have shared more and connected more and become what I would call friends, um, he's really realized like, man, this guy isn't anti-MLS. He's one of the few true fans of MLS I've ever met. Um, and in being a true fan of U.S. soccer, he holds it to a higher standard than anybody I've met. Um, I just, sitting back, I, I just see what the MLS could be. And the only thing holding it back is just that the people sharing in the pie would go from 60 to 6,000. And that's just, again, happening within the, uh, within the, era in which we live, the socio-governmental era that we live, um, that's just not happening yet. I see the resistance to it and the demands for it to change crescendoing. Um, but also, you were hinting at it earlier, we're at such an extreme time that the people at the top don't even put forward there's not even an effort to really act as if they're trying, um, mm -hmm. whether it be, and I'm, I'm really trying to back out of this governmental thing. Cause I don't, I don't want to lose anybody or come across as obnoxious, but whether it's Congress or Don Garber, it doesn't even seem like they're giving us the decency of an effort, like a, a perceived effort. Um, and I think that's just, I think that's just where it's gotten to. Um, but yeah, I couldn't support U.S. soccer more. I couldn't support MLS more. It's just in seeing how they operate, I've got to, I got to say something, or I don't actually love the game. Is how I look at it. Well, Drew, I again, I feel like a, a broken record here in saying that I couldn't agree more because I think that um, absolutely what what you said that I mean you can be critical and still support what they're doing, and I think that. Um, you and I feel the same way. I mean, I, I want nothing more than the men's team and the women's national team to be successful uh, in this country. I think, you know, not making the World Cup uh, on the men's side recently was a massive setback. And I think that um, a rising tide lifts all boats. I mean, yes. I keep coming back to that saying, you know, and I think just philosophically, you and I are, are very much aligned in, in our thinking. So I'm incredibly thankful that we were able to connect because I, I, I kind of got the sense that, you know, in following you online, I'm like, hmm, this guy's definitely interesting to me. Uh, but, you know, and now having had a chance to have a conversation with you, um, you know, if if I lived in Colorado or if you lived in the Pittsburgh area, uh, we would definitely be pals. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're, we're long distance pals now. But uh, yeah, uh, I, I love everything you said. And so if, if folks want to connect with you and reach out to you and, you know, follow along in your journey, um, what are the best ways for them to do that? Um, follow me on Twitter would probably be the easiest way. Um, I, I can't tell you how much I'd love to connect with anybody. And I, as dogmatic as I can come across, just because I'm informed and passionate, I, I am in every moment hoping that somebody will open my eyes to a gap or a um, misgiving in my learning or, or beliefs. Um, I'm the kind of guy that, um, well before they became super popular, specifically at this past conference, I was a huge supporter of Todd Bean and Raymond Verheyen. Both guys disagree on, on things to, a to a pretty extreme amount, but, uh, I find it to be bare bones, good to be able to take what you can from both and and leave kind of the debate in the middle to kind of stew and see what comes from it so even if somebody doesn't doesn't uh agree with me i'd hope that they follow me and reach out send me a personal message private message whatever they are and uh connect um just in leaving i would say that again i appreciate the opportunity to come on obviously it's it's an opportunity for me to get my voice out there i think all of us want to grow in influence um so i look forward to maybe reconnecting with you in the future but um yeah. you, asked, you asked earlier what my strengths and weaknesses are as a coach uh, 
I would say a strength is, and something that I would like to just say to coaches is just go for it. Um, go for it emotionally. Go for it from an energy standpoint. I, I mess up this quote every time, but there's a quote that's come into my life over the last like six months. And it's basically, uh, you can't be a transformative life altering force for anyone without being willing to be a fool to someone. Um, if, if you are not exposing yourself enough to be transformative as well as probably make a fool of yourself, um, you're probably giving your players a good experience when you yourself could give them a great one. Um, so each coach has to figure out what that means to them. Uh, but just go for it. Um, you know, I, I love that. <laughs> I try to I try to bring a lot of energy and a lot of engagement to trainings. I've had one boss tell me it's too much, so I I I kind of recalibrated. My current boss says I've pretty much got it dialed in that I that I have a style and it works. Um, so just at, in my journey is to continue to kind of refine that, but just go for it. Because, I mean, the kids deserve better coaches, and a better coach is one that inspires them. And you just – you can't inspire somebody with a really clean exercise. Um, you got to inspire them through patterning passion for the game. Um, I think probably the biggest gap between my generation and um, – just speaking plainly uh, – I think the biggest gap between my generation of white players and the generation of Latino players could possibly come down in large part, in small part, who knows, uh, to just the patterning of passion from fathers and mothers. My dad observed soccer and participated in it, and that was unreal. It changed my life. It, it probably made me a coach. Um, you've got to pattern passion for the game. Or you're probably just running a decent session. Right. Yeah. Well, Drew, uh, thank you, man, so much for, for yeah. coming on the on the Touchline podcast. And I wish you nothing but success. And hey. uh, would gla gladly have you back anytime. Hey, so. thank you so much. Um, I'm glad we realized it was Eastern time for you, Mountain time for me. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for having me on. And again, I just hope that everybody would connect with me. Um, I would love to come back on because I'm sure there's a number of things we'd love to discuss further instead of U.S. soccer and Don Garber and stuff like that. But uh, but yeah, there's it's it's an endless passion and it's an endless just I mean, there's nothing there's nothing cooler than coaching soccer. All right, episode 18, almost in the books, and my thanks to Drew Campbell for coming on the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast. Drew, I wish you nothing but success in your coaching journey and very much enjoyed our conversation. would love to have you back on the podcast sometime and uh, dig into some other topics uh, a little bit deeper. So nothing but continued success. This podcast is available on 11 different podcasting platforms, so please be sure to subscribe to your favorite podcasting platform, and that way you will not miss a show in the future. New episodes of On the Touchline are available every Wednesday and every Saturday, and from time to time, I will also put out a bonus episode with some additional content. Also, if you listen on Apple Podcast. It would mean the absolute world if you could go to the show and please leave a five-star rating and a review. I would love to continue to grow what we're doing with this podcast. The listenership has been absolutely fantastic two months in, and I can't thank you enough for listening to the show. Uh, it really means the world. You can connect with me at any time on Twitter or Instagram. My handle is at SoccerCoachJB, and DMs are always open that if there are ideas or guests you would like for me to interview, I would be more than happy to reach out to them and have a conversation for this podcast.
New episode coming later this week. And thank you again for listening. This has been the latest episode of On the Touchline. And until next time, I'm your host, Jason Broadwater.